Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we unearth the cutting-edge science on cannabis that's typically only found in academic journals and bring it out into the light. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. We are back for season two, and we still have so much to learn about cannabis, so expect plenty of new content on that. But we're also going to be having a wider range of conversations this season and talking about some of the new research on plant-based medicines and psychedelics like psilocybin, ketamine, and ayahuasca. We also have some great interviews with anthropologists, and we're going to be exploring some of the societal and cultural elements surrounding the production and the use of cannabis and other alternative types of medicine. Today we are featuring Dr. Reggie Gaudino, who is the VP of Scientific Research at Front Range Biosciences. Dr. Gaudino was formerly the Chief Science Officer at Steep Hill, which was one of the first cannabis testing laboratories in the U.S., and there he oversaw all scientific research and was responsible for building the Cannabis Genetics Division. So in this episode, we talk about uh, some of the data that Dr. Gaudino and his team collected while at Steep Hill. We talk about one study in particular that um, focused on the pathogens and bacteria that could be found in certain cannabis products. And Dr. Gaudino also shares some suggestions for shopping responsibly and the ways to, to find the best cannabis products on the market. Dr. Gaudino is also an expert on intellectual property. So we talk about the current state of patent filing um, for cannabis strains. And he really breaks down what makes a new variety of cannabis actually distinctive enough in order to be eligible for a legitimate patent. Um, So we talk about the characteristics and the markers that a plant would actually need in order to be different enough from, from the other strains that are already out there. So super interesting episode for both cannabis consumers and also people within the industry. How did you end up working as a scientist in the cannabis industry? Um, so that was kind of um, <laughs> a mistake. Uh, <laughs> so, my, so my background is in um, molecular, mole, molecular genetics and biochemistry. It's a hard word to say. Um, and um, through through my career, um, I've done just about every type of sequencing. So I'm old. I'll just say that up front. Um, <laughs> Um, and so, you know, since the advent of like DNA sequencing right before they went to, I guess, what would be considering first or the first next gen when they went from chemical cleavage to Sanger um, type sequencing, Sanger dideoxy sequencing. Um, and so um, my career started way back and, and I was doing um, a lot of DNA sequencing and analysis of, of short regions of of. The, the mechanism that is responsible for gene expression. I was looking at promoters, upstream, you know, enhancer sequences, stuff like that as my graduate career work. Um, and and I've always been fascinated with what turns on and off genes throughout a developmental cycle. So I, I have a very, like, organism view of biology, right? So it's mm-hmm. all, all the pieces that come together to make something work, right? And if you look at things that way, it's a different perspective than if you are looking at just, okay, what does, what is this gene and what does it do? Right. So, um, so. And in you your look, earliest, your earliest research, were you focusing that still on plants or were you looking at gene so expression I, in humans or in any organism? So I, I've gone up the evolutionary cha- chain. I've started in the bacteria, then went to yeast, um, did some work in chickens, frogs, uh, and then crossed over to plants, and then um, have been a plant person ever since. So, um, so I've, I've actually have gone up the evolutionary chain, right? So yeah, uh, sounds like it. <laughs> um, but it's always been the same. The same question that I've always asked is, what makes a gene tick, right? What turns it on and off? What makes it respond to environment? What what? Why does it? Why does the expression of certain genes change over time? And oh, you know, and 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 with 
certain triggers, right? That's always been my fascination. It's like, how does that work, dude? Right. So, um, mm-hmm. and so, um, I, the, I finished my quote unquote academic career, um, as a postdoc at in Washington University in St. Louis, uh, working actually out of the Monsanto building on a project that was kind of, you know, in conjunction with Monsanto. Uh, I used equipment on, you know, I actually had a badge to go onto their Chesterfield campus. I was, you know, um, had the opportunity to go in and see what like a big ag company does and how they do it. Um, so that was all, you know, really cool. And I got to do some really cool stuff, you know, gene transformation, you know, making callus tissue out of, um, you know, various plants. And so it's ironic that all of that stuff has come to play later in my life in the cannabis industry. Uh, it was not how it started. I ended up going from there into intellectual property, uh, also kind of by mistake, because I answered an ad for a part-time consultant at a high dollar value, which is something that you almost never see as a postdoc. Uh, <laughs> And um, and it was only supposed to be for like six months, and it ended up being three and a half years. And so, um, so after having sold out for money, I found myself unemployed uh, when the case ended, and they no longer needed me. And I got kind of got stuck in intellectual property because I um, nobody wanted to hire a postdoc who had been away from the bench for almost four years, right? And so. Mm. And ironically, even though I spent 20 years away from the bench, when, when I came back to the bench, which is when I came back to, to um, you know, the cannabis industry, um, all those techniques were still highly relevant, right? So it was just a matter of jumping in and, and doing it. So how did I get there was I was doing patent work and... I have a cousin who lives in New York who actually grew up with the original uh, founder of Steep Hill Labs, David Lampack. Uh, they were childhood friends, and so they were they were t- they were uh, together one day. I guess David Lampack had gone back to Suffern and was visiting, you know, friends, family. Was hanging out with with my cousin and said, "Man, if I could just find a good patent guy." And my cousin said, "Hey, my cousin's a patent guy." Yeah, <laughs> I know just uh, the guy. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It was I, I got a guy. So mm-hmm. uh, David Lampet called me, um, and I, I was actually working for Sequinome at the time. Still, um, I went up mm-hmm. on the weekend and uh, kind of just to do some consulting work. Um, Looked at their portfolio. They have, so at that time, sequent. Um, oh, sorry, Steep Hill Labs was a, a was a strictly a, a cannabis testing laboratory. And um, just to put but, us, put this within the time frame, this is 2013. This was actually 2000. Let's see, 2000 late 2013 or early 2014. Yes, exactly right. Yes. Okay. Sure. Um, so this but, is very pretty early on in the evolution of the cannabis industry right but 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 even earlier on steep hill so so with you know i i say this you know with a lot of pride and and you know reverence steep hill labs started the cannabis testing industry right like there was no commercial right. cannabis no testing before steep hill laboratories right so they were the innovator right and, and it was an opportunity for me to go in there you know and and i guess you know the segue is as well, you know, what was there? Why did you do it? Right. Well, to finish off the IP story, I, I went there, looked at their stuff. They had done a lot of very innovative work, unfortunately. And, and one of the things, the, the most innovative thing they did was uh, they built the first near infrared um, cannabis potency tester. Right. So this was way back. This is, you know, it's the, 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 the Quanican one was way back in the industry. Um, and, uh, that was and could some, you, yeah, could you explain what that is for listeners yeah. who, who aren't familiar? So the, uh, so near infrared technology allows us to take a light spectrum, a diffraction spectrum, uh, after you grind up cannabis and you put it into a special cup, right? The, there's a defined path length, there's a defined, you know, light frequency and so on and so forth, right? So, um, so we, we, we look at the light scatter spectra, right? And, um, and we can from that spectra and training to our HPLC data, right? So the, the, we would we would take the measurement and run run the real you know wet science on the on the product. Uh, you know it, it, this is strictly flower at this point. So um, and then and then with that data in hand, identify 
what the cannabinoid peaks were based on light scattering, light absorption, and all those known properties of the different cannabinoids. And, uh, you know, it was that kind of thing that, you know, to, to bring things full circle, you know, it was that kind of data that when I went in to do the IP review for them, that I was like, dude, this stuff is great. Too bad you already made a product and sold it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the conversation about what do you have to patent became a conversation about, wow, you guys should be doing this kind of stuff. And then it, it went from, well, can you help us with IP to, hey, how about if we just hire you and you do IP and the R&D? And I'm like, Okay, that's a pretty good offer, actually. So yeah. That's how, so that's how I got back into the uh, into science, really, away from IP into the actual science with the, I, the IP bent, you know. And it was actually kind of like the dream job because, you know, the the development of IP and the development of R and D were an integrated unit, and I ran them both. And it was, you know, like I I could have asked for a better job. So. Um, so when you okay, so when you arrived at Steep Hill, it was 2013, um, and it doesn't sound like they were doing a lot with the data that they were collecting. So, so over the next six years that you were there, what what progress or, or what improvements, what research were you able to do, and what were some of the most interesting things that you learned? So um, we started to really dive into what all of the different chemistry from the plants was telling us we started to look at things like the terpenes we were the first one of the first to offer terpene analysis um we we started kept expanding our minor cannabinoids we went from the basic ones to you know we had a very heavy chemistry department like we had like guys like don land kimron de cesar who are you know long time you know professional chemists like don land is you know tenured professor at uc davis in the department mm -hmm. of chemistry right so um you know so so we were always heavy on kind of like that. What's the next step? What do we do next? You know, how do we make it better? So um, we went and we, you know, we searched for cannabinoids. And so, you know, when people had six standards, we were offering 12. And then when people got 12, we were offering 17. And, you know, so we always, we were, or I should say, Steve Hill was always kind of ahead of the curve. And that's what allowed us to actually build breeding targets, right? So now, mm -hmm. right, so now we started to offer like early leaf testing, because if you knew if your plant was CBD or THC dominant, and you were trying to breed for CBD, we off, we, we cut half your workout, right? Once we started to get to that point, we were able to start correlating the genetics. So we started to sequence things, right? So by that time, Van Bacodal had already come out with their 2011 draft of the cannabis genome. Um, Kevin McKeon's group had come up with, you know, a couple of the variant uh, tables for ChemDog and some other stuff. You know, so there was already some data out there. Um, but having come out of the, ge the genome world, right, um, when I did the assessment, I was like, well, everybody's going after THC and CBD. Let's go after something that nobody else has thought of yet. Let's go after sex. Uh, so while well, everybody was sequencing females because of bud, we were sequencing males because of pollen, knowing full well that at one point somebody would say, hey, we only want females. We don't want pollen. How do we tell? Uh, so we, we went to... Oh, wow. So... so um, yeah, no, so I, so I, I, I look at things a little bit differently. So when yeah, everybody that's else, very clever, that's very clever. So, and the other thing that we did at the same time as that was, is that we made the decision not to do Illumina sequencing because the entire world was doing Illumina sequencing and Illumina sequencing leaves you with a big problem. Lots of little pieces and you don't, don't know how to put them together. So when everybody else in the industry was doing Illumina sequencing, we went with Pack Bio to get, to get like some very long reads. And at one point, we had, in fact, the best genome out there because we had the longest reads and we had the fewest contigs. Uh, you know, but as things go, you know, other people did it and better and better technology came along. But, you know, at one point, Steve Hill had his foot in the ground as having the best genome available for study. Um, you know, and, um, you know, I, I think that's that is kind of how we, we built the whole program, right? It was like, okay, you know, let's take let's take a better look at this than everybody else is like, ooh, the new hot thing, right? Let's look mm -hmm. at this as scientists and say, okay, what do we need to complete this task, right? So we need long reads because we know it's a plant and we know it has a complicated genome. And so therefore we should be looking at the best tools that we can to put the genome together. So we went out and got a male 
and we did long read sequencing to kill two birds with one stone, and literally that's exactly what put our genetic program on the map. So from that we got the the very first commercial sex test that worked reliably, right? Um, Steve Steve Hill put out you know our our the the Gen Kit sex ID test was the first one out there on the market in two thousand. 14, maybe 2015 early. Uh, mm. We followed up a year later because of the same analysis and, and stuff that we did. We followed up with, uh, a year later with the very first useful CBD test, right? So people could tell CBD from THC either by chemistry or they could do it um, by the existing SNPs that were out there. We found a SNP that predicted 20 to 1 or higher every single time. Right. Mm. So 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 instead of just saying, yeah, you're CBD dominant, you can be mixed ratio or high CBD. We, we found a marker that was strictly high CBD, 20 to one or greater high ratio. Right. So so we, we went into it thinking of it more from, a, you know, having come out of of, you know, genomics and 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 kind of a plant background and then um, a molecular diagnostics company, you know, kind of as my upbringing. Right. So. I, I put together a genomics company that made molecular diagnostics for the cannabis industry, mm-hmm. and I, and I built that on the, the the broad chemistry base that was Steep Hill before I got there. So I I was a very fortunate person, to have been given a very cool job at the right time in the right place. So yeah, I would like to. Um... Yeah, I'd like to kind of dive more deeply into the male and female, you know, sequencing the the male genome versus sequencing the female genome of the plant, because obviously, you know, most cultivators exclusively grow these female plants and the male plants are destroyed. So there isn't a lot of interest in understanding, you know, the, the, the genome of the male. But but it sounds like through that research, you were able to identify um, certain markers that indicate that a plant is going to be male and and that way. Yes. That's how you developed that um, early mm-hmm. identification test. Well, it was it was looking at the industry, right? And so, mm-hmm. what were the bottle? What, so, and knowing the industry, and, and and some of this may have a little to do with that. I had some experience growing cannabis as well. But, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't want to talk about that very much. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, but the bottleneck in the industry was, you know, that when you go when you grow from seed. And so, remember. Um, Cuttings, clones, while they dominate the industry now, they were not always the industry, right? And so, right. Um, and they can't, and, and they really, while they serve a purpose in the industry, they will they will never be the be all and the end all of the industry, especially as we approach, you know, commercial scale agriculture size, right? So you, so the cost to plant a hundred thousand seedlings, right, is way more than the cost to plant a hundred thousand seeds. Right, just end of story. Right, so 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 when you get to commercial scale, right, and, and and I think maybe this is why I'm a little bit different as well, right. So I I have I do have you know exposure to big ag, right. I I do understand how that works, you know. I I, I look I, I understand how you know the biochemistry and, and and the biology works, and so you know. When I look at the industry, I, I look at the industry as okay. These these are this is the task, and, but these are the problems, right? So the first problem growing from seed is male versus female, right? How do you tell, right? Mm. Um, you know, because by the time you tell, right, it's it, it, you've wasted half your space. So it's this yeah, is a resource, right? Right. So this so so now you have to think of the industry in terms of resource management, right? So and and I and I think again because of the time spent for me in both law firms and, and corporate USA, you know, I came in early. I, I came into the industry early with a different perspective, right? The industry at that point was dominated by people who came out of the industry who probably grew their entire lives, you know, and grew outdoors and were really good at growing, right? And and were far better growers than I was, right? But but did not have either legal and or, you know, big company experience to try to put that all together, right? So, um, but I tell you what, the best companies in the world are still the, the combination of the people who know how to grow the plant, touching the plant, and the people who know how to run the company working 
to do what the people who are t- who know how to grow the plant are telling them to do. <laughs> right? so, yeah, um, definitely. And I do want to circle back. Yeah, I do want to circle back to some of the intellectual property because um, I know you're an expert on that. But but let's talk about one of your papers that you published kind of using some of this data that you're able to gather at Steep Hill. Um, so one was published in conjunction with UC Davis called a microbiome assessment of medical marijuana, mm-hmm. um, which essentially reported that medical marijuana from dispensaries around Northern California can contain bacterial and fungal pathogens that can cause serious or even fatal infections. So sounds like terrible news, but also very important for patients to know. Uh, but could you tell me more about this research study and what prompted it and how you conducted it and what you learned? Sure. And so I just want to say, it, so almost, it's funny how things work sometimes. And and um, even in science, you get these bursts of, of, of commonality in research, right? So uh, very, very near around the time that paper was published, uh, you know, Kevin McKiernan's group in the genomics on the West, oh, sorry, the East Coast, came out with a very similar publication, right? So they did it on the East Coast, their own. We did it on the on the West Coast with, the, with UC Davis Medical Center and came to the same conclusions, right? So completely independent, around the same time, come to the same conclusions, right? And that is that, you know, so cannabis will not kill you, but what grows on cannabis will, right? So, and because of the nature of cannabis, it's, it's very hydrocarbon rich. It's got a lot of nice things that bacteria thrive on, right? And 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 uh, you know fungus as well, um, you know it is a it's an excellent vehicle for the transmission of these things, right? So, and, but that was, and and so that's kind of what our our contribution was. And in, in the course of that, you know, because UC Davis couldn't touch the plant at the time, we, we did all the collecting. Uh, we sampled randomly from samples that came in for testing, right? I remember this paper was done at the time when testing was completely voluntary, right? So uh, that paper was before the BCC, you know, the, the Bureau of Cannabis, uh, California Cannabis Regulation came on board. Um, you know, we were still operating on whatever it was, Prop 215 or whatever it was, 264, um, compassionate cannabis care kind of thing. So, um, so not everybody was testing. Um, not everybody was as educated as they are now, I think. Um, and I think also, um, you know, it was only the more conscientious people that were testing anyway, right? And, mm-hmm. and realistically. And, um, and those conscientious people were actually the dispensaries because at the time you had the harbor sides or, or places like that, you know, uh, Berkeley Patients Group, where th- these were, these arose out of collectives where they were medical collectives and people were, were, were there was a, a focus on wellness, right? So, so these early large dispensaries took it upon themselves, right, to incur the cost after they had already paid the growers, right, um, for, uh, to, to then test the cannabis. And, and so that was a really conscientious kind of forward-looking health benefit thing and, and those they need to be applauded um, um, and so you know out of that we took stuff that came in at random you know mm-hmm. just we you know 20 or however many it was 2025 um, plated them um, to do the actual testing, then collected all of the bacteria and fungus that we got on the plates, extracted DNA, and then sent the DNA to UC Davis Medical Center for them to be able to, um, you know, do the actual sequencing. So we we did the collecting and preparation of the DNA, and then they took it from there. Uh, and and and, it's, and it should it should be noted at the time. So so uh, you know we were one of the the the, the top. Um, microbial testing labs at the time as well. So through the course of this, Steep Hill had worked very closely with a company called Pathogen DX, and we had developed, or well, they had technology that we helped further improve and co-develop. Um, but it was, you know, it, it was their invention, their technology. You know, we just helped them make it a little bit better, um, where we were able to test for a slew of organisms in the first place, right? So that's how it got out there because suddenly we were testing for all sorts of organisms and giving reports on, on stuff that nobody else was kind of even asking about, right? So, um, 
And because we took it upon ourselves at the time, again, this was compassionate care, there was no regulations, you know, we wanted to provide the, the, the most information for those people who were considering this as a medicine, right? And, and, and that was Steep Hill's focus. Again, Steep Hill, um, you know, our, our job was to make sure the cannabis was safe for consumption, right? And so we, you know, we were the first to introduce a bunch of tests, like, you know, we were the first to search for tests for pesticides, the first to do a microbial test, the first to do something called residual solvent analysis on on, on extracted products to look for, mm. you know, so, so, so like a, know, a concentrate product or exactly, exactly a car- vape right. cartridge or something. Yeah, right. So, so, you know, all of that stuff came together, right, so that we could, you know, really put together a robust safety package for, for the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and then out of that came the microbial work that attracted attention from, you know, the UC Davis Medical Center. What was uh, the reaction? What was the reaction from some of these cultivators? Because it sounds like most of them were so they, they, and they were not happy. So yeah, so, were they so, even aware that there were, um, you know, maybe problems in their their cultivation facility that were leading to this or? or were, well, or, and I guess my other question on that is, were you able to identify at what stage in the process um, oh, the pathogens had been introduced? Like, were absolutely. they introduced while the in the flowering stage? Were they introduced during the drying and trimming where there was a lot of handling? So the answer to the last last question is, is all of the above. And then and, and the, the answer to the previous question is that, yes, we were absolutely able to help de- devise environmental screening programs for, for companies where we were able to go through we took swabs we like a went we went in with hazmat suits uh, collected swabs from all over the building air handling their trimming machines their the whole nine yards um and and we and we mapped out their building and gave them you know microbial test counts for each of those regions we then helped them remediate did follow-up testing to show that that was clean and sent them on the way. Yeah, no, we actually, we did a lot of work that way in conjunction with Pathogen DX. So, so, so it, 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 we did a lot of really out there kind of for, you know, stuff that probably I'm going to be honest, ended up making us a, a, a very non-profitable company, right? So all of that work and development, you know, takes time, takes money, takes salaries, you know, and, and you couldn't charge a lot of money for that stuff back then, right? And mm. now people are now that every company out there is doing exactly the same stuff and charging a lot of money. And unfortunately, Steep Hill helped you know kind of pave the way. And 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 being first is not always being best because you got people coming in after you doing the cheaper because they want the business, and suddenly you got no business. So, right, right. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, no. So, so there was. And a when lot. was when was this study performed? Oh, so that one was probably 2000. I think the data on that one was collected in 2016, 2017. So I think it was published. Okay. Yeah. So. so do you think things have improved over the past three years or so? Um, now that t- testing regulations are more stringent and regulated? Uh, well, or do you think that there is still a lot of, you know, these bacterial and fungal pathogens in cannabis flower? So, this is a delicate question. <laughs> so, um, has it improved? It has improved in some respects, right? So, I think pesticide testing has improved. I think residual solvent testing analysis or residual solvent analysis, you know, uh, mandatory testing has improved. Um, I think microbial pathogen analysis has gotten worse um and it's because of regulations the regulations are difficult to meet because they're not specific they pick arbitrary organisms that make no sense for example so we are concerned about stick e coli okay um however you don't have to um you don't have to have e coli to get shigella you know toxin poisoning right so it's been shown that stx1 and stx2 can cross over into other uh of the same you know kind of bacteria the grip the the um, i believe it's the gram negatives i'm not sure uh back, but 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 some of the bacteroides um that that particular uh family of of, of organisms can 
can it can cross over, right? And to make matters worse, Shigella is actually um, a an acquired disease that E. coli got from uh, you know from a, um, another uh, bacteria that's actually called Shigella. <laughs> you know, it's its name is Shigella, right? So, um, so and Shigella poisoning it around the world comes predominantly from that other organism, not from, you know, um, E. coli, right? So, so, and then we look at things like Aspergillus. Well, California as, tests for, for four Aspergillus species, right? One of which is a known, you know, human pathogen, no doubt. Aspergillus niger, otherwise known as black mold, bad for us. Yep. Got a test for it. So, but the, but then they picked, you know, Terius, uh, Fumigatus, and Flavis, which are typically only problematic in immunocompromised people, right? And are largely more livestock affecting, right? Okay. So, but what about all the other things like that we know that exist on cannabis that we know are human pathogens why don't we test for any of those right so mm -hmm. so overall my opinion is, is that uh the regulations for, for and i can say this now because i'm not a sleep pill and i'm not associated with the ccia and and it doesn't matter if the bcc doesn't like me anymore um but so i think that uh i think the microbial testing regulations not and I, let me not just single out california because right, it's not just California. I think microbiota. Right. I think the same gro growing yeah. practices yeah. are done everywhere in the country. So I wouldn't say that you know things are necessarily right. better in Colorado just because we don't have the the report testing this. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not better in Colorado because the last time I purchased at a dispensary in Colorado, that I opened a container and I could smell a pyrethrin. So some some's not right there. So okay. So <laughs> I'm glad you said that because that segues. Um, well, to my next question, which is as a consumer, um, knowing what you know from doing this research and also being, I guess, being able to smell bacteria when you open a container of flour. No, no, no. That, 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 that was the chemical that was sprayed on to kill the fungus. So the pyrethrins oh, okay. are, are, are pesticides that are being sprayed to kill the fungus. And I know the smell. <laughs> and so yeah. I opened up the container and I was like, oh, okay, bummer. I'm not smoking that one. <laughs> I, st yeah. I still have it. In fact, I still Did have it. Did you return? Oh, didn't no, return. No, no. <laughs> no, no, because no, I, I came to California with it, right? So I bought yeah. it on my way out. And so mm -hmm. I still have it. I uh, I still have it. It was, let's see, it was, does it have a purchase date? No, it doesn't. Oh, so what do you do as a consumer, knowing what you know from doing this research? How do you shop responsibly? And how do you, what do you do research? Are, are there certain products that you avoid or seek out um, to kind of know that you're consuming products that are safe? So um, I'm I'm old school. I, I think I mentioned that I'm old before. So yeah. So I I'm a flower guy. Um, I tried dabs. They I didn't understand them. Um, vape cartridges. Uh, I, I, for something about the vaping process, uh, oil vape that um, gives me. I, mean, I can understand why the vape thing happened with the lung problems, right? Because when I smoke vape cartridges, it's just because I have sensitive lungs. I My lungs feel oily and I cough repeatedly until I cough up some sort of something or other uh, that I vaped, right? So, um, and so I, I don't do, I don't vape at all. So when I, if I do vape, I have a, um, I, I, I won't say the name because I'm probably not supposed to give product endorsements, but uh, I will say I use a dry vape um, apparatus. Uh, and so I, I, again, when I vape, I still only vape dry flower. Right? So, mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, so my only concern then is, you know, whether or not that flower was grown well or cleanly. So I, I tend to, uh, you know, um, only purchase from dispensaries that I know, uh, that I know, <coughs> sorry, deal only with a, um, you know, licensed uh, operators, right? So, um, and I will say that because of California is a great place and I get to grow six plants a year, <laughs> so I don't purchase often. <laughs> it's put it that way, and I grow, okay. and I grow completely organically. <clears throat> so, 
On the other hand, I will say that, um, you know, COAs are an important thing, right? So when I do purchase, I do ask to see if I can see the COA. If they give me a hard time, I'm not interested in buying there. <clears throat> um, I think <clears throat> I need some water. Sorry about that. Um, I think um, that that that's the nice thing about um, the industry now is it's been so integrated into the internet and you know apps and whatnot. Many places are actually allowing you if you've clicked the QR code, you can look at the at the COA, right? And you can see that the COA came from a licensed laboratory, and it um, has passed its, its uh, required pesticide testing and so on and so forth. <clears throat> now, um, I would as a as a consumer who had existed in this industry, I would take it one step further. But that's just me, and that is I would look at the laboratory that did that test, right? Not all laboratories are created equal. Not all laboratories, um, you know, actually understand the process well enough that um, I trust their data. And the BCC, God, God bless its soul, <clears throat> has a lot of COAs to go over, right? So some get through the, full of the cracks. So, you know, I would take the looking at the COA a step further by not only looking at the data on the COA, but like looking at the lab that did it, you know, and there are some very reputable labs that have been there a long time, that they know what they're doing. Um, and, and if the COA came from a laboratory like that, I'd say, okay, you know what, I trust that. <clears throat> Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We had another, um, so we had Cindy Orser on an, another episode, and she works for DigiPath Labs. She's a mm -hmm. CSO, and she had the exact same recommendation on exclusively vaping dried flour. So, um, yeah, so I guess that's that's our product recommendation from, right from the <laughs> laboratories. <laughs> Fact-checked it. Uh, so let's let's switch gears because I do want to talk about intellectual property uh, when it comes to various cannabis cultivars and cannabis varieties. And I'm wondering what you learned about this uh, at Steep Hill. And when you look at the testing results of different flower varieties, so I'm looking at one strain from, let's say, a, a grower, you know, two different growers, let's say both in uh, Northern California. And when you're testing these flowers and comparing them side by side, how much do they really vary? Um, are you finding that, were you finding that they were actually quite similar and, and there wasn't necessarily any real intellectual property that certain cultivators had? Or were you kind of finding <clears throat> the opposite where uh, growers had two strains that might have had the same name, but had, you know, very different cannabinoid profiles or very different chemical profiles. What What is kind of your, your reflections on that? Um, boy, this, you're just asking all the questions designed to make me really unpopular. So, um, <laughs> no one likes the fact checker and no one likes the laboratories. So, it, it, was a, it was an interesting time because it was a time when everybody out there came to you and said, dude, my stuff's the best stuff. You should test for me for free because I'm going to make your lab better. Like, literally, I, I used to hear that constantly. Mm -hmm. right? Got to the point where after, <clears throat> you know, being, being anxious to get data and all this other stuff, got to the point where I got a little jaded and I was like, all right, dude, let's tell you what, you pay me, I'll run your test. And if you're right, I'll give you your money back. <laughs> yeah, right, so, so cutting some deals, got it. Well, no, just a, dude, listen, it, you pay me and then don't, ex it was a, you pay me and don't really expect to get your money back because you're you're not that good or you're not that different, right? Like literally. Mm -hmm. um, but at this point we had, you know, tens of thousands of tests in the database, right? So, um and the reality was, is that, you know, yeah, there were some standouts. That's how we found, you know, Canatonic, right? The, the, one of the first high CBD strains that wasn't Charlotte's Web, right? So um, we found um, Doug's Varin, the, the very first, you know, the, and to this day, it's still the highest producing Varin, you know, THCV producer known to man. So, you know, it was because we did see some people with standouts, right? But at the end of the day, you know, if you're looking at talking about, you know, 
property, uh, you you have to base intellectual property on some sort of novelty. Well, if everybody's making a 25% THC product and everybody's saying, oh, mine's 25%, well, then that's not novel. You can't get a patent on that, right? So then now it's not about, you know, are you making 25%? It's are you making 25% with something that somebody else is not doing, right? And then you can, you that's where... You know, there are patents out there that kind of went that route. You know, there's the Biotech LLC, Biotech Institute LLC patent that, you know, they went after, um, you know, specifically THC and CBD producing plants that make at least 3% THC and at least the, I don't know how, whatever the percent CBD was, 6, 5, whatever it was, um, but was not mercine dominant, right? So they carved out a section, right, and said, okay, because the majority of plants, over two thirds of all cannabis varieties are are beta, you know, um, are, are beta mercine dominant, right? Um, we we will exclude our invention from that two thirds. We're just going to go after this this one third. <laughs> so you know, which was f- further narrowed down by the fact that it had to be you know a hybrid cannabis producing plant, right? Making both THC and CBD. And THC at least this much, right? So, so they, they they narrowed themselves into a little area, right? So, but still, it included many varieties that they did not breed, right? So, so it was kind of still a land grab for stuff that was theirs and other stuff. So, um, so this is a long-winded thing of yes, there are things out there that you can put IP around, right? But but the nature of the patent arena is is that the further into the game you get the harder it is to create novelty and carve your space out right mm-hmm. so early on the very first cannabis patents are going to be able to to claim a lot after the first two three years of, of issued patents it's going to be really hard to start to claim stuff and and this is where people have to understand it's not enough to just oh i have a it swell smells sweet yeah well yours and those 27 others smell sweet what else do you got right so um but yes you can and so and this is so now why having a plan and having an ip plan as part of that plan makes you know makes you a better cannabis industry participant right mm-hmm. the reason being is that okay so i have a plant that does this it makes these things in these ratios right and it has this special minor cannabinoid at a higher level than anybody else and oh by the way it's good for these it's good for these co- to be able to be able to you know alleviate these conditions right whether it be mm-hmm. you know, anti-inflammatory or whether it, you know it be you know parkinson's or whatever right so um, you know, and you can cite data. Now, the problem is by citing the data, whether you collect it or it's already in a peer-reviewed publication, you automatically tell the can- the the, the, um, <laughs> the patent office, hey, look, see, somebody did research on it. And then they're going to say, oh, because somebody did research on it, it's not a novel. You can't have it. Right? So, um, okay. <laughs> but they'll try. But, but, but just because there is a, um, a use for that cannabinoid doesn't mean that a plant that makes that cannabinoid is not novel, right? So they'll try to do that. And that's where you need to have a patent attorney or a patent agent. And you have to understand the game and da, 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 right? So, but, so yes, you still can go and get IP around specific varieties. And, mm-hmm. after, and, and people absolutely need to be doing that to protect themselves from the, the Monsantos or the, the, the Eli Lilly's and Pfizer's or you know, GlaxoSmithKline's, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, but you also have to be realistic about how the game is played, right? You you have to go in and you have to do work and you have to get a lot of data and show why this thing is the only one making this much of that product. And then you have to tie it to a use, right? And and okay. say that and by people but by going that route, I think people can in fact still carve out very useful IPP in this industry. So Mm-hmm. So I read in another article that you like to read patents, patent filings for as a hobby, uh, and then also that there are about 200 new applications every six months. So, so over let's say the past six months, have you seen any patents being filed for particular new varieties or new breeds that you really were like, oh, that's a good one, or has it mostly just been like mm, that wouldn't really stand up if anyone were to challenge it? 
So it's a good question. So first of all, there's there's a dark period. So um, so when a patent is filed, or uh, you don't see it for twelve to eighteen months. Um, okay. And so I get patent uh, alerts based on a set of search terms that I have, that I have programmed them into my um my search my my patent search fun, you know um, software. Um, and it, you know, and so every every month I get the latest that that fit that bill. Um, and interestingly enough, right, you know, I mean, there are a good number of patents that come out every single time, but I say, damn it, I, I, ah, now I got to be worried about that. Um, the ones that I'm mostly worried about are people going after variety patents, right? Cause, cause now my job at front range biosciences where, uh, you know, that's my real job now. I, I, I'm actually at a hemp breeding company. And so the, the work that we have done. Um, and developed over the years is now being internally focused where, you know, our job is to identify varieties, breed, create new varieties, and, and build better varieties, right? So, like, so now that, you know, again, so the so big ag approaches things a little bit differently than, you know, a, a either a small farmer or a cannabis farmer, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why I say small and or cannabis farmer is because even small regular farmers do things a little bit differently than you than you think about on, the, on a large ag scale, right? But um, you know, on, on a on a larger scale, right? Um, agronomics is about building plants that are that require less maintenance right uh, that's i guess that's an oversimplification but that, that's a good way to look at it right so we don't want to have to put a plant that, that will require a ton of work for the farmer into his it, it, you know in that in his area so if we have a plant that does great in the cool humid north you know east trying to make that plant grow in the hot desert southwest is not a good company strategy right so so ultimately right you you cross a point from where you are you know selling a plant that does great in your backyard or maybe in your microenvironment to guys like in south america who different microenvironment and then call you up and say dude this plant sucks right and so you know um having you know stepped into the role as, as director of, of R&D at, at, you know, and plant variety development at, at, at Front Range, you know, our goal is to make a better plant. Our goal is to find out what works where, right, and then breed the traits people want into the backbone that works in that spot, right? And so that that's where our focus is now and where our, our R&D, you know, the same kind of things we did at Steve Hill just internally. And, and I think it's important, you know, I bring that up because you know, um, you know th- that's that is kind of the level of I think maturity, right? That that the entire industry needs to step up to, right? The mm-hmm. GMP level stuff, you know, you know, good laboratory practices, you know, good manufacturing practices, all of that stuff, and and again, and then we start to do, you know, we start to build plants like big ag builds plants, right? You know, right. So, Right. So. So it sounds like so at your current position at Front Range. So it sounds like a, a patent that you might file for would be something that's high CBD, high CBN, or, or but also frost resistant that grows really well in North Dakota, or resistant to humidity that grows really well in Florida. Exactly. So it sounds like yeah, there's these other layers. So okay. we can kind of get beyond just you know what people might have been patenting from these indoor warehouses that can grow anywhere, and right. actually start to look at how um, some of these external environmental conditions um, affect the plant. And then you're also, and then you're getting even more specific. So I think the intellectual property is becoming even more defined. Oh yeah, and, and so it, absolutely, and more important, right? So. To, to get to the point where we get and and and, and this is weird because <clears throat> I have I have a I have a love-hate relationship with Monsanto <laughs> All right. so um, and, and the reason being is that is that you know um, I understand why they sue people right so having come out of intellectual property for 20 years right 
and and and, uh, and ironically, uh, even though I, I I worked in conjunction with them at my postdoc, my first job out of my postdoc was actually on a case against them in which they lost 174 million dollars with my help. <laughs> so um, wow, yeah. But like, you know, the 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 thing is, is that they sue people because they spend almost three million dollars a day on on, on research. Mm-hmm. So when you spend a billion dollars a year on research, you are damn sure going to file patents and protect your your inventions, right? <clears throat> and so, um, you know. Intellectual property becomes even more important in the cannabis industry because as more and more companies like Front Range are doing the, you know, putting big dollars into field trials around the United States, you know, collecting massive reams of data, processing that data, turning that into breeding targets and to understand things, right? So so building a competitive advantage costs money, right? And and mm-hmm. so so yeah, intellectual property is important, and people, and I think people in the cannabis industry, in the beginning at least, shied away from that. And there was the whole, you know, kumbaya where you know where we should share everything open source. And you know now that, you know, corporations matter and, and profits matter, you know I, I think people are starting to see the writing on the wall, and these these things are becoming much more important. Yeah, I think it's so complicated um, because I do think that so if these cult, you know, cultivators and growers right now are not um, filing for patents on, you know, different varieties, then y- you get a big player like the cannabis equivalent of Monsanto. You, you get a big company to come in and they start just gobbling up all of the patents and, and whether these are grounded in real realistic science or not or, or whether they just are able to file a patent for high CBG, period. But if they have a ton of capital resources, you know, these other small breeders are not going to stand a chance. Well, you're right. And I'm just going to make one correction to what you said. You said the cannabis equivalent of Monsanto. The correction is remove cannabis equivalent, right? Yeah, of course. Monsanto could just come in. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, and, right, they're indirectly, right? You know, we, we, multinational corporations are multinational corporations for a reason, right? So, mm-hmm. GW Pharma, right, has an association with Bayer AG. Bayer AG owns Monsanto, right? So, yeah. you know, it doesn't, it, you know, things like that, right? So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but then um, my other my other thought on that too is uh, I think there is some lack of education around cannabis patenting and and how does this you know if with certain pat with certain patents and defining certain intellectual property does that hamstring the industry and does that prevent breeding efforts that would have you know eventually really benefit medical patients well um well that's a good question and i'd say that there's yes and no answers to that right so let me start with the no. After, you know, um, patent term expires, right? It's 20 years from, from data filing. Right? Um, after that term expires, the entire invention is dedicated to mankind and, and everybody can use it for whatever they want, right? So it's no different with a plant patent. Um, and, and because of that, and because you are not guaranteed the ability to um, dominate the the market after that 20 years of from the time you file you're given a period of mini monopoly right so that's that's the way the patent system works um so having said that um it's almost impossible unless you find a novel mutation in a gene and you're the only one who has it um It's almost impossible to to be able to not or to, to to corner the market on any one thing, right? Like like right now, there are many different CBD varieties out there. Are they all twenty to one? No, but there are some eight to ones. There's some five to ones or four to ones. There's some five to threes. There's some three to ones. There's some one to ones, right? So 
but they all make CBD. They make CBD a little bit differently. And then you can even have those categories. You can have the broken down. Well, well mine makes it as a one-to-one, but it's, it's main terpene is limonene, right? So, and that's going to be a different variety, different genetics, right? So there, there's a lot of maneuverability in there. If people are responsible and don't go over, don't go crazy trying to capture everything, right? So, so this gets into a, a little bit of, you know, human nature, right? Um, but, you know, if you think about it, you know, with the number of things that you can do with this plant, you could have, you know, seven, eight, nine different CBD dominant plants that have a four to one CBD to THC ratio because there are seven or eight different major terpene categories that they could fall into, right? So each of those <clears throat> could be its own unique patent, right? Or at least, you know, the first one in each of those, in the in those silos. But instead, somebody went after all the CBD-dominant plants that made this much and were not myrcene. So they went after, even though myrcene represents two-thirds, right, and the other six represent one-third, they went after the all other six instead of one of those other six. Or, see what I'm saying? So if people are responsible and patent responsibly and, and, and file narrow patents, will be okay. The problem is, is the patent office has no education. They have nothing to rely on. There's no prior art. And so they don't, they don't know what's an overbroad patent. They don't know what's overreaching. They don't know anything about cannabis at all, right? So, you know, so the early patents, people got pie-eyed and they were like, oh, dude, look, I can get everything. I'm going to get it. All right, well, the rest of us are suffering now. But it can be done. It, it, mm. There's enough room out there that everybody can get a piece of the pie with a unique strain and 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 be very happy. And are these people who filed for patents early on uh, that the the patent offices didn't for these really broad, wide-reaching patents that maybe the people um, in the patent office didn't understand? Are these people successful, or are they fighting off a lot of claims? Do you know? Um, I don't. I don't know of any patent challenges so far. Um, oh really? Okay. Their portfolio is still active. They're still pumping out patents um, mm-hmm. on even a wider variety of things. Now they're going after other minor cannabinoids. Um, so, you know, although they themselves don't seem to have enforced the patent either, right? Which is a big thing. If they don't ever enforce it, it doesn't matter, right? But if they do enforce it, then it matters. Now, oh, those got kind it. of. Right. So it would be right. less likely, so kind of in the current state of affairs, it would be less likely for someone to actually challenge a patent and more likely for a grower to just grow something similar and then wait to be challenged by the person having the patent. Yeah, I mean, I, that's I that, how that, it works. Okay. Yeah, that, well, I, that's probably the safe way to do it. When you, so, getting a, uh, a patent challenge done has its advantages and it is done. You see that in intellectual property, usually in, in, in technology fields, um, um, where one company will look for for an opinion that's that shows that, that the way they've done something while similar does not infringe that other methodology. Um, but in the cannabis space, really, um, you have significant complication. If you were to take the same mom, right, the same cannabis mother, take 10 different cuttings off of it at the same exact time, root them at the same exact time, and then put them in 10 different places under, with you know different fertilizer, lights, et cetera, et cetera, you would end up with 10 different looking plants. Mm. So, and, and in that 10 different looking plants, well, they may not look morphologically differently, but chemically they would be different. So, you know, in their output. So, so that complicates the problem because the patent office doesn't understand that either, right? Mm-hmm. And and we and we because of our of our the way we started underground as cannabis breeders, not as geneticists and agronomists, okay. There's many times when I've measured something, right? And it's either two things with different names have overlapping chemical profiles, which could be one of two things, right? Um, Or the same thing by the same grower over the course of several years, and it was a clone, 
changed because they changed lights, they changed fertilizer, they did this that, right? So, um, so the industry is complicated by the fact that you have people using the same name to describe everything and or you have the same, you have one specific genetics that will give you different responses, which makes anything kind of hard to pin down, which is also another weakness in the patent system right now because patent, so the plant patent system was built on fundamental agronomics, which means that an F1 hybrid is a very defined thing. It is the first generation of a cross between two well-characterized and true breeding plants. Okay? So they defined an F1 hybrid in agronomics as two completely characterized and understood lines that bred for true to type, then crossed together, and then that gives you a defined F1 hybrid. Patents speak, patent claims are based on that fundamental understanding. Mm -hmm. We don't do that in the cannabis industry. There's not a person that I know from the underground that could tell you what the, what the lineage and whether or not their plant bred true. Very few cannabis plants breed true. When you sell a cannabis plant, if you're lucky if you get four or fewer phenotypes. Mm-hmm. If you if you're in the area where you're getting eight, ten, twelve, twenty phenotypes, that's a very heterozygous plant, and it has no business be, being called an F1 by true agronomic standards, right? But this is where we you know we have two different industries. We have yeah big ag agronomies, right, and we have the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, it makes sense. So you have these mashing of these two standards and yeah of course there is some incoherence uh, as these industries combine and i think it is it is interesting to your earlier point where the best companies the most successful cannabis companies are the ones who have people from both worlds on their team and are trying to work together absolutely right so um but yeah no it's um it's been an interesting ride though i will say you know since i've been here you know early 2014, like 2013. It's been an interesting evolution. Yeah, and I do want to talk, because I know you've recently transitioned from um, working at Steep Hill Laboratories as a CSO, and now you are at Front Range Biosciences. Um, and we actually have another uh, episode, uh, an interview with John, who's the founder of Front Range. So, um, yeah, so I think people who are familiar with this podcast know know, know about that company. But I'm wondering, um, yeah, what is what kind of work are you doing now? And what is the difference from working at a laboratory to working at this hemp biotech startup? So, um, ironically, the work is not different at all. The work is not really? the same. Right? So we still, <laughs> we still um, sequence plants. We still do chemical testing on plants. We still are developing new assays we we're you know we're developing you know internal viral assays so that we can keep an eye on you know on as we breed you know are are, are we doing our best to keep our plants you know uh, contaminant free like viral you know hplbd some of these other things right so um we continue to do marker development so uh, we, we talked about the cbd marker and the sex test marker that we had built before we're in the process of you know building a terpene testing matrix uh, marker system. Um, you know, we have intellectual property that's being followed on both of those. So it's the same exact thing, right? So, so we're mm-hmm. still kind of pushing the envelope. We're still di- dissecting the plant, trying to figure out all its secrets, um, you know, and build better tools to be able to build better plants. And and um, the only difference is now that these are not tests that are being you know offered to the public. Um, you know, it's 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 well the new work isn't so the old work that we did at steep hill is still being done at steep hill right so people don't realize they think that oh no you guys left you can't nobody's doing that work anymore and you stole all that stuff I'm like actually no all the tests that people that we that we started with here were the ones that we came up from steep hill and steep hill is still doing all those tests so um you know but we, what we have done since then is we've developed some viral testing we developed you know chirping testing um we <clears throat> You know, we have company targets for, you know, different, you know, types of plants that, you know, uh, you mentioned frost resistance. Frost resistance is is indeed one of the traits that I'm working on. Um, You know, pest resistance in general, those kind of things. 
Um, and so now it's just the same type of chemical data gathering, genetic data gathering, you know, um, meta-analysis, that big data analytics. So that was one of the things that was different about us, but my R&D team, right? So when I built my R&D team, I built it from the ground up with big data analytics capability because I knew from the beginning when a, when a, when a one plant has 500 compounds, that's pretty much big data right there, right? So just to understand all those compounds is a big data effort. So I have a big data analytics guy who came to me from Exxon and who was the guy who helped build the near-infrared spectrometry, you know, the, the near-infrared potency thing. Right, I have um, population geneticist. I have, you know, the guy who was the former director of, of gene discovery and bioinformatics at Sudent that works for me. So, you know, we 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 spent a good deal of time putting together a top-notch multidisciplinary team to be able to answer all these questions internally, and that's what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to wrap up with a, a fun question. I'm wondering what what are your goals for for your research moving forward? If you could learn anything about the cannabis plant, what would you like to know? Everything. <laughs> no, really. So, so there is not, and so that's what amazes me about this plant. The, the deeper you look, the more there is, right? So, this entire conversation, you and I have concentrated on one thing and one thing only. The cannabinoids, right? Yeah. We mentioned terpenes. We never mentioned any of the dozens of other chemical groups that are known to be biologically relevant and are already known for their uses in the fragrance in- industry. The aldehydes, the ketones, you know, um, the things that smell like cherry or banana or those things, right? Mm-hmm. So um, flavonoids, which, you know, now canaflavin A, canaflavin B are known to be anti-tumor properties. So you and I spent an entire, what, an hour or something talking about one small aspect of the plant. So now when we get away from the phytochemistry, you still have fiber and hemp. I mean, so fiber and grain, right? And those are completely robust fields of research in this plant, right? You can engineer the fibrous tensile strength and length. Um, when you get done with the biomass from taking the seed and the oil, you can still turn that remaining biomass into biofuel. There are so many things that can be done with this plant, and people just don't understand what this plant is really there for. Right, And that's, <clears throat> that's my goal. That's my goal, to uncover all the secrets and make everybody understand what, this, what we should be doing with this plant instead. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Reggie. I really appreciate you. you coming on and sharing all your knowledge. And yeah, this has been yeah. fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.